Let's go ahead and make our way to Luke chapter 4, if you will. We've made our way as far as verse 31 as we continue looking at the Gospel of Luke on Sunday morning. We left last week with Jesus in the synagogue, giving an opportunity to read from the scroll of Isaiah, found himself in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Two verses of the book of Isaiah that had already been declared as messianic prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, Jesus openly identifies himself as the fulfillment of those verses. And he shows and demonstrates that in their hearing, this has been fulfilled. He then begins to discern their doubt and their rejection of that truth. And he demonstrates that by leaving as they are trying to uh, kill him by throwing him off a cliff. Uh, How's that for your first message reaction? Uh, They want to throw him off the cliff. Immediately, Luke, as he continues the uh, account, now brings us down to the area of Capernaum, where we pick it up in verse 31. The Gospel of Luke was written by the physician Luke, a Gentile individual, for the purposes of recording for the individual who he was in employment to, Theophilus, Theophilus who had become a Christian and who allowed Luke then to travel with the apostles to help them with their physical ailments. As a physician, uh, he was capable of doing so, and Luke wrote for us not only the Gospel of Luke, but also the book of Acts. It's a two-volume set. And Luke records everything that Jesus did prior to his death and resurrection in the Gospel of Luke, and then everything the apostles did after the ascension of Jesus in the book of Acts. He has written these things that Theophilus may have certainty in the accounts that are given concerning Jesus Christ. There were many individuals recording the events of that time, and not only were written documents uh, created, but also a verbal uh, transmission of uh, what they would call oral tradition uh, was being passed down one after another. And of course, Luke is saying, I want to get to the bottom of it all. I want to make sure that Theophilus has an accurate account that he may be certain of all the events that take place. And like all the gospel writers inspired by the Holy Spirit, each gospel writer wrote with a specific intent. For example, when Matthew wrote, he wanted his readers to understand the royalty of Christ, that he was a king. When Mark wrote, he wrote that Jesus was a servant, and he wrote from that perspective. John Mark, the one who wrote Mark, I believe, was uh, recording for Peter, all the accounts of Jesus. And Mark demonstrates Jesus as a servant. When you come to John's gospel, John is concerned with the deity of Christ, showing and displaying that Jesus is God. In Matthew and Luke's gospel, there are two genealogies given, one of Joseph to, you know, from David to Joseph, one from David to Mary, showing that each are of the lineage of David, but also to substantiate that Jesus was of the lineage of David, which was a prophecy of the Old Testament. However, though Luke, being a physician, appears to be fascinated with the humanity of Jesus Christ, Jesus being that unique individual, 100% God and 100% man, perfect in every way, therefore able to fulfill the sinless sacrifice and allow for the atonement of those who would believe in him. However, though, in Luke's writing of Jesus's humanity, he never diminishes the aspect of his deity. And therefore, when he writes, he always wants to demonstrate and to show the authority that Jesus carried. And in our next two accounts, we have one public and one private. One account, Jesus casts out a demon that manifests itself in the middle of the synagogue service. The second is more personal. The 
mother-in-law of Peter is ill, and he petitions Jesus to heal her. Uh, what a good son-in-law, huh? I wonder if many would. No, I would for my mother-in-law. She's sitting right there. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I would, Mom, really. Really, I would. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, Luke wants to specifically demonstrate it the authority that Jesus Christ carried. And that authority was manifested in what Jesus Christ said. And Luke uses a word, the word rebuke, several times here. And the rebuking of Jesus Christ towards the demon and towards this disease is a command of correction. Look at it this way. Jesus Christ is correcting the imperfections that have been ushered in through the fall. And I speak specifically of the fall of man. And because of the fallen state of society, we now wrestle with things like illness and sickness and duration of life. For, of course, sin ushered in death. And the same voice that spoke everything into creation and saw that all was good is the same voice now speaking through Jesus at this time to correct by command those things that are wrong, showing and demonstrating that he is the Messiah, specifically that he is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 in which he just claimed to fulfill. And this is Luke's thinking as he now proceeds into these two accounts of healing. Healing of a demonic spirit and healing of a disease. And again, the emphasis in the Greek language is upon the fact that Jesus spoke with authority. That again, the same one that we know the Bible tells us spoke all things into creation is the same one speaking now. And that should just cause great awe and wonder amongst us. To think God manifesting himself as human, coming in this form, in humility. The voice of the Lord gentle and tender to most, rebuking others uh, for their hypocrisy and their religiosity is the same one from the moment of creation spoke all things into creation and now he is correcting elements of the fall to allow the demonstration of his true identity. In the Greek language, let us understand that when we translate it from Greek to English, the Greek language does not have punctuations. That doesn't mean that you cannot determine what is the focal point of the Greek text and what is the emphasis of the passage in which you are reading. There is a grammatical structure that is demonstrated through what is called a Greek discourse. And therefore, you can understand what the highlight of the chapter is or the passage is, and also what is considered background or foreground information to help you understand what the writer's originally intending. It is from that grammatical understanding that I see that the focal point of what Luke is writing here is truly upon who Jesus is and what he is saying and what he is saying correcting the wrong that has been introduced by the fall. This same authority was given to the apostles. And Jesus then, after his ascension, you saw that same authority in Paul and John and Peter and so forth. And today, in the body of Christ, we have the gifts of the Spirit that allow for the continuation of these ministries. As the Spirit gives to each one as he wills certain gifts such as faith and healing and discernment and so forth. So as we begin here in verse 31, we journey with Jesus to the city of Capernaum. Capernaum was south of where Nazareth was located. It is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, and it is 
part of the region of Galilee that consists of about 200 small villages and cities. At the time of Jesus Christ, scholars and archaeologists believe that the region of Galilee was the home to almost 2 million people, more than that it is today. It was in this region that Jesus did most of his miracles. It was in this region that Jesus uh, taught and uh, he began to clearly identify himself with the Messiah. And just a side note, if you are, you know, one of those overachievers and like extra homework and extra credit, I am totally in agreement with scholars who are now saying that the American Christianity has to have a better understanding of the book of Isaiah to truly appreciate all that is in the Gospels. And I agree with that. I think Isaiah is a beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, however, though, it's quite long and some of it's quite difficult to understand where you're at at times, but don't let that intimidate you. Remember that the Spirit of God is dwelling in the heart of a believer and he wrote it all, so you got the author with you, and I believe that we can discern the Word of God and he'll lead us into all truth. But it is amazing when I see the evidence presented by uh, scholars who show and demonstrate how often Jesus identified with the terms of Isaiah, especially the one Luke chooses, which is a very interesting one, the avid Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, the one who is anointed by God. And so Luke bringing us to Capernaum, we're journeying with the Lord. He once again, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday in the Jewish calendar. And they were astonished at his teaching. For his words possessed authority. Now this is where the highlighted emphasis comes into the grammar. This is really the key of what Luke is trying to convey to his original readers. That the words that Jesus possessed had authority. Undoubtedly because he was the one who created all things that were created by the word of his mouth. As a result, as he was teaching... He, therefore, apparently had sparked, in verse 33, and in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he, that is the man, cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? You have come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Let's stop there for a moment. I just like that word, ha. Ha, ha. You know, how do you put it? Ah. You know, I don't know how you do it. Jesus' authority provoked the response of this demon. Let us understand that the Bible is replete with examples of demonic activity here on this earth. Unfortunately, today, the church in America has gravitated towards what I call naturalism, and in fact, it's called that by many, who simply want to determine that all things that are in reality are physical in nature. I argue from the point that no, there is a, there's a reality beyond the physical, and that is the spiritual. And some churches now completely dismiss any idea of current demonic activity here on this earth. They believe that it only manifested itself during the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. And as a result, right now, this is why we don't see demonic activity here on this earth. Then we have other dear brothers and sisters that are completely on the other end of the spectrum that see a demon behind every wall and every door and every situation. And I think the Bible teaches a balance. I believe demonic activity is as real today as it was during the time of Jesus and will escalate at the return of Jesus Christ. I believe today part of our misunderstanding about demonic activity is that if we choose as a society not to believe in demonic activity, they can do anything that they possibly want to do and nobody is ever going to question their behavior. Do I believe that all mental illness is a result of demonic possession? No, I don't. But I have to admit, 
There are things being said today that I often wonder where the origins come from. For example, what would cause individuals to clap after an abortion law is passed in New York City and laugh about it? Shortly after that, a video surfaced online, and I didn't get enough chance to research it. That's why I didn't introduce it today. But I think many of you probably have seen it, of a young man standing out of, outside an abortion clinic witnessing. And one of the doctors comes out and confronts the young man. And as the doctor approaches this Christian, he begins to change almost. He comes face to face with this young Christian man who handled himself with such dignity and grace. It, uh, I was so happy that he had such a dynamic witness. And the doctor started changing his face and going like this. And he said, doctor, you're killing babies. Don't you understand it? And the doctor says, I love killing babies. And I was looking at it. I'm like, did I hear this correctly? And he goes, sir, you need Jesus. I want nothing to do with Jesus. So I did a little research to find out about if this was just a hoax or whatever. Do you know that man died? That man died. The, the doctor. The doctor died who did that. I want to tell you that I truly believe that what we probably saw on that it was a demon manifestation. How many people are going to say that they are going to enjoy killing babies? Demonic activity, I believe, is more prevalent than we think. But we as Christians need to be discerning of the demonic activity. When I was a believer in, uh, first believer in Jesus Christ years ago, I got saved when I was 16. By the time I was 19, I was out with my friends one evening. And we were leaving a concert. And as I was walking, I had my you know, I had my leather jacket on, I had my long hair, you're going to have to really imagine that. Uh, God giveth and God taketh away, God bless God. And I was walking out of this concert, and all of a sudden this guy shoved me, and he looked at me, and he says, I hate you, Christian, and his eyes rolled backwards. I didn't have anything on me to identify as a Christian. And I just sat there, and it was like the peace of God just came over me. And as I stood up, he ran away laughing. When I was in that same time, I remember praying in my bedroom. And as I was praying, we lived in a home that was on the street corner, and next to our house was a large street light. And it was one of those old 70s lights. And, you know, of course, we probably all have radiation poisoning from it, but it hummed like you would not believe. It would just hum. Do you remember those street lights? All night. And, you know, you just had to close the windows even though you were sweltering. You know, Dad never wanted to turn on the air conditioner. He goes, I'm not turning it on until it's 115 outside and we're all dying, you know. But I was praying. And my whole room used to be illuminated at night because of the street light. And one evening as I was praying... The whole room grew dark, but yet I heard the streetlight. I mean, I couldn't see the, my hand in front of my face. And I went back to my pastor, and I said, what is going on? This guy pushes me, and now my room turns dark. He goes, welcome to Christianity. Now, do I see a demon under every rock? No. Do I blame every misfortune that a person has on a demon? No, I don't. But let us first understand that the scriptural teaching concerning, concerning demonology tells us very clearly that demons are alive and active in our world today. When the Bible talks about the gift of discernment, it's the discerning of spirits. To be able to deduce what and where a teaching is coming from. To understand if it is from God or from the enemy. We know that Satan has created a world system that tempts individuals to turn away from the Lord and to indulge in the flesh. But we also know that when Satan fell, a third of his, uh, the angels fell with him, and those are the demons that we now contend with. 
I do not believe that a believer in Jesus Christ can be possessed by a demon. Why is that, Eric? Because we have someone in us that is greater than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit and a demon, there's no room for both. That doesn't mean that a demon can't hassle us, but we do have authority in Christ. As a church, all I ask of you is to understand the biblical identity and doctrines of demonology to know that demons do exist and are real. And let me go one step further. Many of you know me very well. I don't talk in sensationalism. I don't hype things up. But I am wondering if we are now starting to see physically a manifestation of the demonic warfare that we have been part of our whole entire lives. Some of the decisions that people are making today, you have to wonder and question why. And when it comes to things like abortion, what would cause a governor, the governor of Virginia, to say, we will kill the child even after it is born? That is not of God, folks. But what possesses a man? He's a medical doctor. I thought the Hippocratic Oath was to do no harm. Is the illogical irrationality that we currently see in our society an influence of demonic activity? It very well could be. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, with His Word, with the Spirit of God residing in us, we are a light unto the darkness. I respect our enemy, but I do not fear him because my dad is bigger than his. And Jesus, when he confronted them, notice this with me. And again, everything is emphasized on the authority of his word. Verse 33, there was a man who had a spirit, unclean demon, and he had cried out, ha, what have you to do with us, plural, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? Because I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's some interesting information here that you may miss without understanding the cultural background. The word ha there that is used in the Greek is a word of either uh, displeasure or surprise or a combination of both. Their understanding of who Jesus is is clear from our text. But then they ask a question after identifying Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Holy One. They said, have you come to destroy us? Interesting question. That in the mind of the demonic activity, in the mind of the demon that is possessing this man, or the legion of demon, or the multiplicity of demons possessing this man... They ask the question, have you come to destroy us? In Jesus' first coming, he cast out every single demon that ever he ever confronted with simply a word. However, though, in his second coming, he's going to throw them into the lake of fire. And I believe this is what the demon is referring to. He's asking, is this the time of our destruction? Is this the time that things will be once and for all uh, reconciled and we will be held accountable for our rebellion and our wickedness and so forth? Have you come to destroy us? It is not an issue of debating if he can destroy them or not, but when he is going to destroy them. But then they say one further thing, identifying Jesus as the Holy One of God. I believe that Luke adds this here for his Greek readers. Remember, the Gentile community was the ones in whom he was writing to initially. And the Greeks had a very, very distinct understanding of demonic uh, possession and oppression. They believed in demons absolutely. They are the ones that carried the notion that if you get the demon to identify himself and name himself, you then gain authority over him. This is not a Jewish concept, it's a Greek concept. And I believe that Luke added this here because the demons are saying, we know who you are. Showing that they may believe that they have authority over the Holy One, the Son of God. 
But notice how Jesus reacts to such a thing. You have authority over me. Notice with me. In verse, let's see here, 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. If I may, the term be silent in Greek, I think should be better translated, shut your mouth. And simply get out of here. This is the same voice that created all things. This is the God of all the universe. And do you think for a moment the demonic individual, the, the demon himself, had any authority over that voice? Jesus didn't have to swing his coat above his head. Jesus didn't have to lay hands on him and start sweating profusely, throwing holy water upon him. Jesus just said, get, shut up and get out of here. I don't know about you, but that brings me, that's goosebumps, man. That is awesome. And that's the power of our God. He did not negotiate with this spirit. Jesus could care less what his name is. He just says, shut up and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, that is the man in whom he possessed, he came out of him having done him, that is the man, no harm. And, when they were, and then they were all amazed and said to one another, again, notice Luke's emphasis, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports of him about him went out into every place in the surrounding Regions. And again, we now see that his ministry is beginning to escalate. His ministry is beginning to uh, climax in the sense that Jesus Christ is now actively displaying and demonstrating who he truly is. And that the same voice that spoke all things into creation is the same voice that is correcting aspects of the fall. As we come to verse 38 as he leaves that region, he now comes to the home of the mother-of-law of Simon. Simon is Peter. Now, unlike Mark and, and uh, John and Matthew, there is no real introduction of Peter. And many scholars, and I agree with them, believe that when Luke wrote this, Peter was already fully well-known in the church community, obviously being one of the, one of the pillars, one of the uh, apostles, you know, and so forth. And so now Luke brings us to a private moment from the public one in which he just demonstrated. And in verse 38, he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. The term high fever there in the Greek is actually a medical term that we can only best translate as high fever. It was used to identify, we believe, a specific type of illness common at that time, but we don't know which illness that was. But it was significant because other times in extra-biblical literature that we find this, this term used, it is always used of a disease that uh, led to death of the individual who had it. So she was seriously ill. Most likely, this illness would have brought about death. And they appealed to him, that is Jesus, on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Again, Luke uses this word rebuke because he understands the Greek mind in which would read his letter. Again, this is a command of correction. There have been some who believe that this uh, indicates that the fever was caused by demonic activity. Now, 
Darryl, Dr. Daryl Bach, one of my favorite commentators on the Gospel of Luke from Dallas Theological Seminary, who spent his whole life in Luke-Acts, I think, makes a very good point when he says, if this was demonic in nature, Luke would have included the expulsion of the demon from the individual, but does not here. And I agree with him that this is not necessarily demonically influenced just because Jesus rebuked it. Again, the word in the Greek means to command to cor- with correction. He's com- or correction with command. He is commanding something to reverse itself, to uh, cease itself, and so forth. And again, this is the one who created all things through everything that he said. So if he spoke all things into creation, how hard is it for us to understand that he could correct things through the same same vehicle? And I believe that what has happened here is that he is correcting what the fall has brought into place. Now, Adam and Eve did not succumb to sickness prior to the fall. Through the fall came sin, came death, and through death came disease and so forth. And today, we still struggle with disease because of the fall. It is because our flesh, our old nature, our physical body is still susceptible to the fallen society around us, the fallen nature around us. And so we are able to become ill just due to our surroundings, uh, due to genetics, due to consequences. You know, if if we think that, you know, we can do things that have adverse consequences against us physically and then believe that God will alleviate all of those consequences, I think we're wrong because God often allows the consequences of our errors to instruct us in our growth and in conformity to His image. So he rebukes it, and the very first thing she did was get up immediately. She didn't seem to be fatigued or tired, and she began to serve them, showing that she was fully restored by the healing of Jesus. Again, Luke's emphasis is on the words in which had authority that Jesus spoke. And now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. The emphasis here in verse 40 and 41, uh, verse 40, excuse me, is the fact that no matter what the disease was that came to Jesus, he was capable of healing. In fact, this is why so many of the gospel writers focus on leprosy and Jesus' healing of leprosy. Because leprosy, of course, was the ultimate disease of that time. It it caused for uncleanness and separation from all society. It was one of the most difficult diseases of that time. It was horrid to have. And nothing seemed to be able to stop it or to overcome it. And Jesus did that. And here Luke is telling us it didn't matter what it was. It didn't matter what they were ailing from. They brought them to Jesus. He laid his hands on them. He uh, healed them of whatever it was. Because nothing was too difficult for him to correct. Nothing was too difficult for him to make right. And this completely traces back to Isaiah. The Yavid Yavid Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, anointed by the Lord, that he is able to heal of all of these things. When uh, John the Baptist had his uh, moment of doubt, he sent a, a runner to Jesus and said, now, are you really the one or is there another one coming after you? And Jesus quoted Isaiah and said, tell John that the blind see and the lame leap and so forth. And all of these things were accredited to the coming of the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. And Jesus is identifying with every single one of these. And Luke is bringing these things out to Theophilus and saying, this is real. These things have actually happened. 
And not only did they bring out those who were sick, but in verse 41, and demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them, commanded them again, and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Why didn't Jesus want, in both cases, the demons accurately communicating to those around who he was? Well, let's think about it for a moment. Is a demon really the most reliable source of information? No. You don't know when he's telling the truth or lying or deceiving one. Jesus was not going to have his identity revealed in such a way because there wouldn't be any surety in it. His authority over them was supposed to be sufficient enough. This is why the religious leaders came back at Jesus and said that he did these things on the authority of Beelzebub, remember? They didn't want to equate this with the Messiah because they couldn't believe and accept that Jesus was the Messiah. So the authority in which he has to, you know, cast out these demons must have been given to him by Satan. But unlike others, Jesus did not want the notoriety to be expressed by ones who were unreliable. Peter was the exact, I'm sorry, Paul was the exact same way, Acts 16, with Silas. Came into an area, and as he was traveling through that area, a young girl who was demon-possessed came up behind him and started proclaiming that these two were the uh, chosen ones of the, you know, the most holy God. And as she followed him, them, that is Paul and Silas, through the city and kept announcing who they were, Accurately so. Paul finally gets enough of it, turns around and just says, be gone. And the demon departed her. Now this young lady was used for the purpose of divination and was making her owners a lot of money by being able to predict the future. And because they had lost their livelihood, they then had Paul and Silas thrown into prison for what they had done. Now, let me read these words to you, if I may. They are found in Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus read, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's exactly what Luke is demonstrating here. The crowd was filled with wonder and amazement. For word went out throughout all the area of Galilee of what Jesus was doing. When he spoke and preached and taught, it was with an authority like none other. When an individual was asked to speak in a synagogue, they were given a scroll to read. They would read the scroll, and then they would sit down and begin to teach. And when they began to teach in that synagogue, they would always quote the most respected rabbis of that time to allow for what they called theological precedence. They wouldn't expound on the scriptures themselves. They wouldn't uh, have their own thoughts and opinions. They would simply quote what has been quoted and accepted by the populace already by those who are well-respected in Judaism. But when Jesus taught, when Jesus taught, he didn't do so. He began to teach as one who has the authority to do so, correcting many of the misconceptions of the religious leaders of that time because he was God and he was able to do so. And people were amazed by this. And they wondered even more diligently who he was. And then to see diseases flee before him and to see uh, demons flee before him. What kind of authority was this? 
And Luke is saying that same authority that spoke all the world into creation is the same authority that we see here and now through the person of Jesus Christ. And in verse 42, as we conclude, And when it was day, he departed and went into the desolate place. It's a place where he was alone. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. There's a point I'd like to make because I think there's a distinction between preaching and teaching. Preaching is a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, often in a even an evangelistic setting. Teaching is taking and expounding upon the scriptures, teaching what the interpretation is and application of that particular text. What I'm seeing in the church today is an awful lot of preaching, but very little teaching. And I believe that we need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I believe this is why the office of pastors and teachers have been given, to teach the Word of God to the people. That's why we do what we do here at Calvary. We try to teach you the Word of God to the best of our ability. And we feel one of the most effective ways in doing that is by taking a book and starting from the beginning and going through it to the end keeping everything in its context and allowing the passage to develop and to manifest itself. And often the interpretation is right there for you to understand. We also do this for a secondary purpose, to show you that you yourself can do it. That when you begin your devotions each and every day, you spend some time in prayer, then you open the word of God, start reading from the beginning of a book to the end of the book. And let the Spirit of God show you and teach you what those things say and mean. Amazing time with the Lord in our devotional life. That's why I encourage you to pray beforehand and say, Lord, open my eyes and my ears to hear what you have to say through your word. And then pray afterwards. Oh, Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Now, how can I apply this into my life? Please don't be one of those who are read through a passage and, you know, you're the Holy Spirit for everybody else. Oh my gosh, I'm reading this, you know. Cleanse your hands, you're filthy sinners. That's for my husband right there. That's for my wife. That's for my kids. I'm going to put that in their lunchbox, you know, without considering how it applies to you first. Always take yourself into consideration first. When it comes to healing, we know that healing always accompanied the proclamation and the teaching of the Word of God. When it comes to the expelling of demons, it was always in conjunction of the proclamation and the teaching of the Word of God. Both in the, in the life of Jesus and the apostles, these signs were given to show and to demonstrate the authority of what they said. And it was to indicate that these things could be uh, trusted and that these things were truly of God. And today, do I still believe in healing? Absolutely. For the Bible says the Spirit of God in the church, as He wills, will give each individual, when He desires, the gift of healing. You know, meaning that when that is appropriate and according to God's will, it will come about and will also give the gift of faith to believe the healing to take place. And it's a wonderful thing to see. But does that mean that God desires all people to be physically well? Why doesn't God heal everybody? And there are passages where he healed everybody to demonstrate that he could heal everything that was brought to him. But there are other passages like the pool of Bethesda where he only heals one there. See, Today, we have to understand that the work that God is doing in us is for an eternal purpose. Do we understand that? Physical healing, at best, is only going to be temporary, isn't it? And sometimes I believe, like in the case of Job, he'll allow things to take place to bring out 
and to chip away at the old nature of the individual and allow the new life to take full blossom or manifestation in the person's life. I think of Joni Erickson Tata, beautiful woman, who believes wholeheartedly, I've heard her state uh, personally, that she doesn't believe that she would have the ministry today that she has if it wasn't for her tragic accident. And even now the cancer that she struggles against. Does this mean that she's in some kind of sin and doesn't have enough faith to heal herself? Not at all. It means that God's purposes are often greater than ours. God is interested in bringing you into the image of Jesus Christ and will use whatever tools are necessary to do that. Paul the Apostle when he was writing to the Corinthian church in his second letter, described a struggle in which he had with what he called his thorn in the flesh. And from that passage, we cannot deduce what that thorn was, but this is what he said and wrote about it. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for earlier in chapter 12, he talked about himself being taken up to the third heaven, seeing things that others had not seen. He says, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So whatever this thorn was, was a great difficulty to him. And from that passage, we don't know what the thorn was, and so we can't be dogmatic about it. But then he goes on to say that Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. The word weakness there is physical weakness. Due to some ailment or some issue that he is contending with. And therefore, Paul says, therefore, I will boast most gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul said, I didn't understand, but that when I'm weak physically, spiritually, I appear to be even stronger than I was before. And then he goes on to say, for the sake of Christ, then I am content within weakness or insults or hardship, persecutions or calamities. For then when I am weak, then I am strong. God is not relying on your flesh to accomplish what he desires to accomplish in and through you. Now, I personally believe that he was, phys- he was struggling with a physical ailment that he describes in Galatians chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. When he writes, he says this, You know, it was because of my bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, Paul writes. And through my condition was, and though, excuse me, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as in Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and have given them to me. And I agree with the Old Testament scholars and New Testament scholars who believe that Paul was struggling with an eye disease that limited him in his ability to write these letters and often had others write them for him as he dictated. And therefore, when he did sign with his own hands, he often says, I'm signing this now with my own hands. I believe it is this affliction that now Paul is pleading with God saying, please release this from me. But then God says something that's available to every one of us. My grace is sufficient for you. The grace that Paul had is the same grace that's accessible to you. And it'll carry me through my weaknesses, through my afflictions, that he may manifest himself through me greatly. Why do I say this? Because Paul wrote this. And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I may not understand it. 
Job didn't understand when he went through the difficulties he went through. His wife didn't get it. She just said, Job, curse God and die. His friends were so convinced that they had all the insight that was ever needed. Oh, it must be because of some sin in your life, Job, that you are in the dire straits that you are in. Just repent. And Job says, I've done nothing. And in actuality, as the affliction was bringing out strength and the glory of God in Job's life, Job's affliction was bringing out the true nature and characteristics of the hearts of those around him. Isn't that interesting? I believe that Jesus Christ can heal anybody according to his will of anything. But I also believe that God may allow something to linger to bring about the good the image of Christ from that individual. But that individual will not walk in that affliction alone. He will be with them from the very beginning to the end. And more importantly, he'll also give them the grace to get through it. One of the things I've learned in 30 years of teaching the Bible is that I am not God. I don't understand everything that God does, but what I do know about God is that God is good and that he loves us. And he's started a work in us that he will complete for he is the author and finisher of our faith. And he who started that good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. And sometimes that work in you is going to be through difficult circumstances, consequences of sin, physical ailments, and so forth. But in the end, we shall be like him as we stand in eternity. If we only would understand God is always more interested in the eternal than he is in the temporal. And if a weakness or an affliction allows me to glorify God in a greater manner, then so be it. But I know that the moment that that trial is, is ended, the moment Jesus decides differently, the moment the Spirit decides to work, He can heal me instantaneously, can't He? Yeah. 